0: This is episode 119 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Winter Youth 2006. This is session two. All right. How y'all doing? Can I get something that I can uh, put my Bible so I have something to say? There we go, a chair. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, it's good to be here. I am. I'm from L.A. I went to Oregon State. And um, I played back in the day when Oregon State really had a basketball program. That was in the 80s. I know they're terrible now, but there was a time that they used to be good. And um, I went back. I I stayed here um, after I I left L.A., came here, went to school, finished at Oregon State, stayed here for about another 13, 14 years, and have been back in my stomping grounds. To be specific, I'm from Inglewood. And that is where I hopefully am moving in the direction of eventually planting the church. So it's good to be back in the Northwest. I got my skin color back. Being in L.A. and uh, and I'm away from my, I'm, I'm, I'm married, been married 11 years, I got three beautiful kids and uh, you guys really had to be special for me to come here and uh, during Christmas, they're real young, come here and spend three days with you. Uh, so, you know, just give yourself a hug and say, oh, okay. So I'm here. All right. We're going to read some Bible verses and then I am going to be the black guy talking about light. (laughs) So, So would you turn to Luke real quick? Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Are you there? All right, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, down to verse 14. Let's read and then pray. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we pray tonight that you would make the realities of the gospel, the claims of the gospel, very true in our lives today. We pray that each person would experience this text in a way that they've never heard it before. We pray for your understanding. We pray for people that know you and don't know you today, that they would get a glimpse into who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. like I said, I I am from Los Angeles, and I don't have a church background. Like I got saved when I was 19 years old, and I'll, I'll get into that later on in the week, but. Needless to say that Sunday mornings were not, you you didn't see a guy like me in church where you saw me was playing basketball at Venice Beach, and I lived to go to Venice Beach because actually that was the best competition in the city. If you could get on the court at Venice Beach and play, you were somebody, and if you could hold court, in other words, if you could win two or three or four games in a row, you started moving into what was called that ghetto superstar status and so and so that was my dream you know not only getting to the court but holding the court down but usually when I'd be waiting for my game I would walk on the boardwalk of Venice I don't know if anybody's ever been to Venice but every freak there is in Los Angeles hangs out in Venice Beach and so So usually when I'm waiting for my game and you'd have to wait like an hour just to get on the court so you would take your time and walk on the boardwalk because in Venice Beach they would have what are called shows. And shows were homeless people who had incredible talent. I don't know if they didn't break into Hollywood or their music careers didn't pan out the way they had hoped them to, but now they're on the streets with a can performing or using their talent to survive. And these are some of the most incredibly talented people you will ever see in your entire life. There's a dude there. I mean, the horn dude, horn man. Horn man is dope, okay? But they had a dude there that could play the string guitar, the bass guitar, the harmonica, uh, the saxophone, all at the same time. And I remember every time i go there, he'd do the same song by Michael Jackson, Beat It and could do it, I mean, do it. And uh, I loved to watch him, but one of the feats that I enjoyed to see see the most was this guy that would literally take 10 to 15 sticks and he put them in the ground and he'd stick plates on top of the sticks and he would simultaneously spin those sticks in a row and keep them spinning. He would keep the plates from falling off the sticks and breaking and he'd have us all in unison. You know, just at plate number one, he'd have this splint, and he'd be down to plate number 15. And just as he's spinning plate 15, the crowd would be like, plate two. And he'd fly down there, spin plate two, just as he's getting get ready to fall off the stick. And I thought to myself, what he does is fitting for how we live out our Christianity. And you know how we do it. Either we've been raised in church or we've become Christians and we want to get serious. We come to this uh, December retreat and we really want to get serious about God. And somebody speaks and they tell you that if you really want to grow in God, the first thing you got to do is start reading your Bible. So the first thing you do if you want to be a very mature Christian is you get your stick and you put it in the ground and you get your Bible reading plate and you stick it on that plate and you start spinning that Bible reading plate. So you're spinning your Bible reading plate because you've got to get through the Bible in one year if you're a real serious Christian. I mean, if you really want to move up in the youth group ranks, you've got to be reading your Bible, right? And so somebody comes to youth group and they start talking about the importance or the power of prayer. So you say to yourself, I know what I need to do. I need to start praying. So you got to keep your Bible plate spinning. You get another stick. You get your prayer plate. You put that on top of the stick and you start spinning that, but you're over here spinning your Bible reading plate. Then a missionary comes on Sunday morning, and man, I love and hate missionaries, because I'm amazed at their sacrifice, but when they talk about their sacrifice, I can't help but think about me not sacrificing and I get really convicted, and I say to myself, "I'm going to start living sacrificial. I'm going to start give up. I'm, I'm giving up things. I'm going to stop living so selfish. I'm, I'm just not going to live like this anymore. You know, I'm going to be more caring, more giving. I'm going to work in the hood. I'm going to do my own thing, and really help the poor and the oppressed, and really make a difference in my life." And so I put a stick down, and I get my sacrifice plate, and I keep my sacrifice plate spinning, but I got to keep my prayer plate spinning, but I got to keep my Bible plate spinning. One Sunday, the pastor preaches this powerful sermon. And the sermon's on giving and about how you need to give up 10% of your income if you're really serious about God. You hear all the cliches about giving isn't giving until it interrupts your lifestyle. And so you decide that you're going to start giving and interrupting your lifestyle. And so you get your tithing plate and you put it on top of your stick and you start spinning your giving plate. And you spin the giving plate, but you got to keep the prayer plate spinning. And you got to keep the sacrifice plate spinning. You got to keep the Bible plate spinning. And then you find yourself 5, 10, 15, 20 years down into your Christianity. And you no longer have five plates. You have about 15 plates spinning. And here's the problem. The problem is, what happens to you when one of those plates fall off the stick and break? We feel incredibly guilty. And the reason why we feel guilty is because we have used these plates that we spin in our Christianity, not as a means of experiencing God's grace in our life, but now we've used it to earn God's grace. In fact, we even take this placement in our life to the, to the degree that we can't even conceive of what Christianity in our life looks like without it. And so we, we do, like many people, at the beginning of our Christianity, we hear the, 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 the life-shattering, life-altering message of the gospel that Jesus comes to save sinners like us. Listen, the reason why you're saved isn't because you could save yourself. To be saved means you had to be rescued out of something. And the beauty of Jesus, the genius of Jesus is this, that Jesus didn't just come to save sinners. He didn't just come to save the unrighteous, but he came to also save the self righteous And the person that needs to repent isn't the person that's out on the street corner smoking crack or doing meth or partying or drinking, but he also comes to save self-righteous, legalistic Christian kids that have been in church their whole life spinning plates, but they don't get the life-changing, life-altering message of the gospel. That's why every time when you read in the Bible, you see Jesus time after time giving illustrations or parables where he shows this very good person and this very bad person. And at the end of the story, the bad person gets it and the good person never does. Listen, the guy out in the street needs to repent of his unrighteousness, but the person inside the church needs to repent of their self-righteousness. This person needs to repent of living in sin, and this person needs to repent of trying to be a Christian. Do you see what this verse is saying? Verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, look down on everyone else. I wonder what Christianity looks like when you don't need to be a Christian anymore. I wonder what church looks like when you don't have to go to church anymore. What does a boyfriend looks like when you don't have to have a boyfriend anymore? What does a certain crowd that you gotta break into look like when you don't have to break into that crowd anymore? And the problem we have is that we're uncomfortable with those kind of questions because they deal with the person underneath the person in your life. So the reason why we go to church is because that's how we gain our acceptance. We want mama's approval, so we go. So it's not driven because of a love for Jesus. We we want to break into a crowd because if we're into that crowd, we've arrived, we're approved, we're accepted. We've broken in. We really matter. I'm a good person. I'm in because I'm running with these folks. What does breaking into this crowd look like when you don't need this anymore? And here's the beauty. And this is what I'm going to bang away this whole week. When you understand that you're righteous, which means this righteousness is a biblical word that means God accepts you. It means this. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. Acceptance or righteousness means this, and this is what God wants to take us to this weekend. When you talk about light, the gospel, penetrating your life, here's what acceptance looks like. You accepting his acceptance of you. And until you accept his acceptance of you, you're going to do like I did for 15 years of my Christianity, spin plates. And I guarantee you, after about 15 years, 10 years, 12 years, 5 years, some of you say, I can't even wait till I graduate. Soon as I get out of this house, I'm bouncing. Why? Because underneath it, isn't this discontent towards your parents, even though that's a real emotion in you? The bigger issue is this. You never knew that God accepted you unless you did stuff. You never knew that God accepted you, not because of anything that you've done, that God looked at you in eternity and determined to love you in spite of yourself. And until you get that reality working in your life, you're going to do like the rest of us do. You're going to be spinning plates till you go on and be with him in glory. Are y'all with me? Quit being so white, okay? As soon as I say this, somebody goes, Yeah! No, no. (laughs) Thanks, my man. Are y'all with me? Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher, Kutcher, what? Whatever my man's name is. <laughs> Don't hate. Do not hate, all right? But let me tell you something. He said something that I wish Christians said because it communicates the gospel in a way that I haven't heard it roll off the lips of most Christians. I loved his show Punk. His show Punk was dope. Loved that show. Me and my wife, we just—I mean, the Justin Timberlake episode. Man. So, so I'm, I'm on a plane. And I, I pick up some read material on my way to my destination, and one of the magazines I pick up is is a, is a it's like an August edition a year and a half ago by Ashton, on Ashton Kutcher, and it's interviewing him about the movie Punk. And the interviewer says, Ashton, what what makes this movie or this show so successful? He says, you know, it's really simple. There's two reasons why this show is real successful. He said, the first thing is, he says, he says, the human community likes to be in on a gag pay, uh, played on somebody that's famous. And they like to feel like they're in on the joke. He says, that's part of the reason which makes this show so successful. He says, but underneath it, he says, there's a greater hidden meaning of of why this show is so successful. And he says it's very nuanced, and you miss it if you don't see it. And he says, the real issue underneath this show, Punk, is this. It shows how people react when you take away their power. And I said, that is the gospel. The beauty of Jesus is that he's our savior, not our helper. And when he comes into your life, he doesn't come to cooperate with your strength. He comes underneath it and undercuts it. In other words, what Jesus does in our life is he strips us of our power. You see, the problem with people out in the world is is that they're operating on their own strength. They want to be rich, they want to be powerful, they want to be influential, they want to make money, they want to live in a particular neighborhood, they want to drive a right car, they want to have an eye candy on their arm. You see what I'm saying? All in an effort, they're being powerful. But you know what? Church kids or Christians are really no different. Their power is different. Their power is, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I splint plates. I don't do what they do. You see where your identity is rooted in? It's rooted in the fact that you aren't living like them. The gospel comes into your life, strips you of all your power, and says, Your righteousness is not in this plate spinning, your righteousness is in me. That's the good news of the gospel. See, when approval's not in place in our life, we distort love, we search for security. We grasp for power. We put conditional claims on ourselves and other people to our own peril because approval in our life isn't in place. But when you know you've got God's approval, you can let your hair down and breathe. (laughs) But you know what? I get around Christians, and they are the most boringest people on the planet. Listen, this Saturday night, I had a big party at my house. DJ, dance contest, everything. If you came there, you wouldn't think that was a Christian party. We didn't play Carmen. None of this third day stuff. This was, we partied. We had dance contests. We got down. It, you know what? It was the bizarre, okay? And you know, the beauty of it was this. I'm standing next to a person and he says, Eric, I thought you was a Christian. I said, yeah. He says, I I don't know what I believe. I said, really? He goes, he says, I just thought Christians didn't do things like this. And I was able to educate him on what the gospel really is. The gospel is not the fact that we don't dance. You need to have more joy in your life. You need to have a little bit more fun in your life. Who told you that you gotta look like a sourpuss to be a Christian? We're gonna have some fun every night because I'm gonna say some stuff that, you know, gonna mess with your head. Listen, my righteousness is not the fact that we're having fun or not having fun. Okay, there's nothing worse than a white guy that tr- now tries to act black, and he's not. <laughs> I, was a, I was teaching at a class, you guys. It was at a, at a Christian college, and I was teaching on the book of Romans, and uh, we got on the subject of drinking. And this was a very tight, very, I mean, very buttoned up Bible college. And we got on the subject of drinking and Christian freedom. And you could tell this class did not did not like the fact that Christians, in moderation, over the age of 21, it's good for you to hear that. Can have a drink in moderation. And they were bent out of shape. Like, how dare you condone drinking as a Christian? And this one guy, you could tell he kind of was the intellectual, you know, campus leader type dude, you know, I mean, red hair, just, you know, real uptight. Not that all red haired people are tight, but you know. <laughs> so he's like, he's like he goes, do you think drinking do you think drinking is a sin? That's what I want to know, do you? Cuz the Bible says drinking is a sin. And I'm like, give me some Bible verses. He couldn't give me any Bible verses. I said, "Well, you know, if you get drunk, yeah, that's a sin, but having a glass of wine isn't a sin." And he said, "Do you drink?" And I said, well, I mean, do I drink? Because I just knew. And I said, you know, funny thing is, is that when I was putting this lesson together this morning to teach, I was at the hotel, and yes, I I did have a drink as I put the lesson together for you guys. And he said, "Uh, really? And I said, I don't, it was one of those Holy Spirit moments, and I realized here's the real issue. I said to my man, I said, You know, you can be in sin for drinking if you get drunk. I said, But you can also be in sin for not drinking. I said, In fact, you can be in sin for listening to Tupac, but you can also be in sin for not listening to Tupac. I said, In fact, you can go to an R rated movie and be in sin for sitting in that theater. But I said, you can be in sin for not sitting in that theater. If my righteousness hinges on the fact that I drink or I look down my nose because I don't drink, I'm in sin. If if my righteousness hinges on the fact that I listen to Tupac or I look down my nose at people who listen to worldly Tupac, I'm in sin because my righteousness is not built on the finished work of Jesus. My righteousness is built on the fact that I don't do these things. I hope you heard that. The issue this guy was throwing out in the classroom was the issue of spinning plates. What does Bible reading look like when you don't have to read a Bible anymore? What does convictions look like when you don't have to have convictions anymore? I mean, we don't have you see what, what I'm driving at is this. Should you have convictions? Absolutely. Should you read your Bible? Absolutely. Should you be divine by that? Absolutely not. Should your righteousness hinge on that? Absolutely not. But we do. Look with me, real quick. Isn't this what we do? My girl, what's your name? Rachel, that's a nice biblical name. All right. Rachel, let's assume Rachel's born here and Rachel dies here. Can you guys see that? But then we're talking like 62, 65, 82, you know what I'm saying? Nice full life, all right? But let's say Rachel gets saved right here, right? She gets saved. She encounters the cross at some point in her life. Now, the question I ask you is this. What is the one thing Rachel needed to hear from the day she was born to the day she experienced the cross? Most of us say, well, she needed to hear this message or experience this message. The what? The the what? Now, now that she's saved from the day that she experiences the cross to the day she dies, what is it she needs to hear? Of course we would say that, but most of us would say she needs to hear discipleship. She needs to hear prayer. She needs to hear get into a good Bible-believing church. She needs to hear, you know, go on a short-term mission trip. You see what I'm saying? We put all this litany, this list of stuff that we say she needs, and what we do is, is that we subtly move away from the gospel. In other words, we see the gospel as the ABCs to our faith instead of the A to the Z of our faith. And instead of, instead of graduating past the gospel into Bible reading, we need to learn how to go deeper into the gospel through Bible reading. And instead of graduating past the gospel into more deeper forms and sophisticated ways of praying, we need to go deeper into the gospel through praying. And instead of, instead of you know, being content with the fact that we got saved, And now we go and do more missional stuff like go overseas. We go overseas, not leaving the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel and bringing the good news of the gospel to people who haven't heard. But how subtly we at the beginnings of our faith forget or leave or push aside or marginalize. The gospel all together, and Paul said in Galatians, if you twist the gospel at any point, if you leave it behind, you're leaving the very thing that saves you because the heart of the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you do like my man does in this parable. What does he do? Let me show you. And then we're going to close. Is that cool? Jesus gives a parable of two types of people. Who are you? What category do you fit into? Look at what Jesus says. He says there's two men in verse 10 who went up to the temple and pray, to pray. And he said the first test case of a person that really doesn't get the gospel flowing through their veins is this first test case, a Pharisee. And he said in verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Do you see the problem with this guy? You see, he he didn't have a shred of the gospel in his life. He's he's not even trusting in in, um, ultimately what Jesus is going to do. But notice, his whole spirituality is based on external things. It's about what he's doing. His whole social structure, his whole ideal and concept about who he is, his whole personality is built on the fact that he does stuff. His whole life is built on the fact of spinning plates. I pray, I fast, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not an evildoer, etc. He's got this long list of stuff. He defines himself based upon what he does. And the problem with that is, is that it always leads to the next step. When you have a religion or a Christianity or a spirituality that's based on the fact that you do all this stuff, this big chest list, it always leads to the next thing. If you're doing great, or if you have to do great, or if you have to feel good about how you're doing or performing, you need other people to be doing bad. And this is exactly what this guy does. His whole religion, his whole spirituality is based on external things. And the way he measures how well he's doing it is by looking at people that are adulterers, robbers, stealers, etc. and says, I'm not like them. Sort of like us Christians. We live in our nice little sowettos. We live in our nice little Christian ghettos. And as long as we stay away from 90% of our town, we're righteous in God's eyes. That's ludicrous. That's nonsense. That's antithetical to how Jesus lived. He was in the highways and the byways. His first miracle was turning water into wine. He hung out with prostitutes and publicans. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. This is your savior, Jesus. He was real. He's more real. We've neutered him. We've watered him down. But listen, the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus is the fact that Christianity is not an outside-in religion, it's an inside-out. And when you don't have the gospel, you always have to define yourself by external things. And in order for you to feel good about how you're living, one of the most important characteristics to that kind of religiosity is the fact that you got to look down at other people. In fact, you rejoice when they do bad because you feel good about yourself. Anybody ever been there? I've been there a gazillion times. In fact, look at this dude. He is a hot mess. Look, in verse 11, he says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about him. So in fact, the real Greek rendering is he prayed to himself. In other words, he was living out his prayer. He was separating himself, even in his prayer. He was a separatist. Not only was he external in his thing, not only did he look down at other people, but he separated himself from the crowd. And here's what religion does. When you don't get that you're a sinner, when you don't get the realities, the claims of the gospel, when it's not flowing through your veins, when you realize that it's not what you do, but it's what he's done, you separate yourself, and you become elitist, you become snobbish, you become self-righteous, and you become influential in your, on, your, on your campus.